0: welcome once again to El master speaks podcast and uh, while we're recording this this month of july is the so-called cordillera month or cordillera administrative region month Uh, actually july 15 is a holiday celebration of the establishment of the cordillera administrative region and uh, as stated in the constitution, will be transitioned and will become Cordillera Autonomous Region. And until now, we're hoping, we're waiting, we're waiting that this will be or that will turn into reality. So, like what we always do when we're doing this podcast solo, is that we'll be talking about, we'll be discussing history. And before I go on, I would like to emphasize that um, things I'd be discussing here are based on my research, and I might be um, giving some information that are not what do you mean? I mean, um, whether or not that accurate due to the rush of doing or conducting the research. But nevertheless, I'm not saying that. I, I I would urge everyone that if you are doing some research about the Igorot history or conducting yeah searching for some Igorot history, this podcast is not that. This is just some um, discussion of history. But I would not say that this is one hundred percent accurate. <clears throat> so please. I'm urging everyone listening to do your due diligence and uh, conduct your research also. If you happen to have heard something here, some information here that is new to you, um, I urge you to verify some of them. Right? So last time we talked about the igorot Spaniard war. I call it war, not uh, rebellion. And like what we are seeing right now in our Facebook page, if you are an Igorot and you're subscribed to the One Cordillera Facebook page, you'll see there that the Igorots are independent and they are not under the Spanish rule for more than three centuries. stays there, right? Now, if you're going to look at the sources where they took this, um, that story that you will always see the name of William Henry Scott So, like I said in the previous podcast before accounts and uh, history or accounts on history and way of living our of um, Igorots us um, during the pre-Hispanic times and in the Hispanic times are so few that sometimes one might wonder if igrods even existed during those times right for the record they do yeah they did exist like uh, we said before but they were at times considered a footnote of history that very few passages or talks about them in the modern history books are written like uh, like what we said before, <clears throat> um, Igorots will only be spoken of or will be written there when they want to talk about people living in the mountain that have dark complexion and not that I'm saying that having a dark complexion is bad, but I don't know, our Filipino culture We tend to love those people who have a lighter complexion. And I think it's only in the Philippines that we see people marketing whitening products, right? Now, that is the only time that the Igorots are being spoken of in modern history books. At times, conceptions about them are wrong, yes, exactly. And the worst part is that those misconceptions even found their way to the education sector that if the teacher won't do the necessary research to verify this information he would be teaching or she would be teaching those wrong notions to the children, right? So those are the only times (laughs) that you'll find Igorots in the history books. Now, with the advent of iPad education, or the indigenous people's education, I'm hoping that this will change, that Igorots here and abroad will also try to dig deeper, to learn about their culture, and to know more about the ways their ancestors lived. In, searcher, in searching of our history, there are some few writings that we can rely upon. Like I said before, that writings during this era is somewhat, uh, you have to take it with like what they say in English. The writings during those times must be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, why is that? Because most of the time, the writings are full of bias. Okay, Like the ones I discussed in the previous podcast before, um, examples are the priest, uh, Spanish priest um, trying to sketch a caricature of an Igorot as a savage, a subhuman, and a human of low intellect. Those are the most—I mean, the common way of portrayal of those writers about the Igorots, right? <clears throat> That's what's happening now. Um, though most of the writing during those time is like that like I said a while ago must be taken with a grain of salt one of the writings that I can find reliable is the book and essays of William Henry Scott um in my opinion like I said a while ago um this is my point of view and uh you wish to know more about this person and then you can uh, also do your research so in my opinion the books written by William Henry Scott is of uh, it's a bit um, reliable and like I said a while back it's being used by most of us now in uh, giving or sharing informations about the prehistoric egodots now to be fair uh mr scott is a modern man unlike the priest who wrote uh, their accounts during the 1500s um mr scott is a an archaeologist in uh, by profession actually i should say and um he also um I, I think it is safe to say that he loved the Igor culture. So to start with like um this just a celebration of this Cordillera month, I would like to I would like most Cordillerans or Igrots to know more about uh, William Henry Scott, as a tribute to his um, dedication in bringing light of the history of Igorot to the world, and uh, in this podcast, would be I'd be talking about um, his life and. Um, I'd be reading one of his essays, the struggles of the Igorot struggle for independence. So, um, William Henry Scott, an Episcopal Church missionary, was American, born in Michigan. He is interested in pursuing a career in archaeology, but after graduating, came to Second World War. That's why he served in the Navy. Um, and uh, after that, of course, is his uh, retirement. And uh, so he finished, he served in the US Navy for until 1946. So in 1946, Scott joined the Episcopal Church mission in China. He taught and studied in Shanghai, Yangchau, and Beijing until 1949. So like what I said a while ago, just to cut this short, um, comparing William Henry Scott to those uh, missionaries, uh, I mean priests, Mr. Scott has this uh, modern thinking. Well, uh, during the 1500s when the priests were writing things about the Ygrots, um they have this view of um, first and foremost they did not study anthropology or sociology and they have this biased thinking that because they are man of God that they are better than other Igrats. just to be fair with them right so going back to Mr. Scott with the general expulsion of foreigners from China in 1949, he followed some of his teachers to Yale University, where he enrolled, graduating in 1951 with a BA in Chinese language and literature. Immediately upon graduation, he was recalled to active duty and served in the Navy for 18 months during the Korean War. So then, uh, served. He served another war that was right after the World War II, we have the Korean War, and he served the U.S. Navy for that war. In 1953, he was appointed lay missionary in the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. As the Episcopal Church became well-established in the Cordillera Mountain region of northern Luzon during the U.S. colonial period, it was here that scott settled he spent much of the remainder of his life in the kankanae town of sagada although some of his most influential academic works like the pre-hispanic source materials and discovery of the egrots are particular interest to anthropologists he personally rejected the description anthropologist as applying to himself. Known to his friend Scotty, he became a focus for pilgrimage by numerous foreign and Filipino academics, entertaining them in his book-line study while he puffed away his trademark cigar. Ligerod People came to think of Scott as one of their own, even eventually referring to him as Lakai. Now, the word Lakai, just to cut this again, is um the literal meaning is an old man, right? Now, Lakai in uh, Lakai, the 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 word Lakai that they call him is called the elder, someone who is um. Experienced of course and elders and one is this experience and full of wisdom. Now with the uh, coming out of Tim Lakai, the Lakai is used for them as the as um, another word for brother. Um they gave it a new meaning and uh, that's the meaning of Lakai. But literally the meaning of Lakai is an old man, alright? So yeah. Mr. Scott, in the during the time of Lakai, again, Apulakai, I'm talking about uh, President Ferdinand Marcos. When Marcos declared martial law, um, William Henry Scott, who was uh, marked as a subversive person or a political dissident, <clears throat> and one of the reasons is according to this, the military. Um, officials who arrested him is because he has um, mouse writing in his bookshelf. Okay, so that's according to the military the evidence that can, they can cite that he, Mr. Scott, is against the uh, Philippine government during the martial law. Now, this is <clears throat> Scott's response when they... Sponsor time! So this podcast is brought to you by Dems Auto Performance. Dems Auto Performance shop offers automotive servicing. Very personal ng kahit anong klase ng sasakyan. Wag lang eroplano. Located at Alapang Latridad, Of course, they also offer off-road servicing. So mga naglalaro ng off-road, gusto pa sasakyan sa off-road, you can visit Dems Auto Performance at Alapang Latridad, or you can also visit their Facebook page, Dems Auto Performance. He said that he is against the democratic government. For heaven's sake, I teach Asian history. And anyone who does that must be familiar with Mao's work. It doesn't mean that I have abandoned Christianity and democratic politics. It just means I am a historian practicing his trade. Scott saw his time in Marcus's prison as a validation of his Filipino nationalist belief. And uh, Schlagel recounts Scott saying that he considered the time in jail behind bars to be one of the best of his life, because he was able to have a long that conversation with all the most prominent anti marcus activists. He shared cell with the fellow historian Suze Salazar with whom he had many disagreements and arguments. Another notable fellow prisoner was a young Butch Delizzi, who is said to have put the caricature versions of both Scott and Salazar in his book Killing Time in a Warm Place. As an American citizen, Scott could have easily left Philippines, but he declined and so he faced deportation proceedings. Marcus's outward commitment to legal formalities resulted in Scott being put on trial for subversion. In court, resoundingly supported and defended by friends, students, and colleagues, and by Scott's own brilliant testimony, he was exonerated with the court dismissing the charges in 1973. I like it. All right. I like it. I love it. <laughs> I want some more of it. All right. I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry about that. And Scott was given going back. Scott was given a memorable and triumphant welcome back in Sagada following his acquittal. He continued to be critical to Marcus' regime. The high level of esteem in which he was held protected him from further persecution, although his situation remained precarious until the lifting of the martial law. One particular article written by Scott titled The Igorot Defense of Northern Luzon," was published in May of 1970, was often tagged by dictatorships' military forces as subversive, although it was actually about incidents which took place from 1576 to 1896, the Spanish colonial era. It is even cited as subversive material during the trial of Father Jeremias Aquino, of this common error by the military cut remark since nobody who ever read the article could find it subversive. One doesn't know whether to laugh or to cry. He criticized the U.S. colonial rule continuing U.S. involvement in the Philippine politics after independence, especially U.S. support for Marcus. In this, he pursued a similar line to the Filipino nationalist historian Renato Constantino. So you can see here he's an American. Um, the one thing I appreciate about him is his um, uh, criticism of the U.S. for involving in the Philippine politics. Not, you know, right after the World War II, um, many people does not know that the Philippines gained their total independence after the World War. Right? And uh, that is sometimes um, very difficult to understand. But in, a, in the perspective of a leader, maybe we can say that uh, our leaders, our Filipino leaders during that time, are scared of uh, being left out by, if, by the Americans because they need support so, and so forth, something like that. Now, going back to Mr. Scott, let's take a look at the writings and lectures of this American author. So, Scott observed the Igorot people of the Cordillera region and preserved elements of pre-colonial culture to a greater degree and over a wider area than could be found elsewhere in the Philippines. So, according to Scott, the culture of Igorot is well preserved. And he saw the resistance of Igorots to attempts by Marcus government to develop projects in the region as a model of resistance elsewhere in the country. He did not support the view of the Igorot people that the Igorot people are intrinsically different from other Filipinos or the view that Cordillera should become an ethnic preserve. Scott was scathing of views that divide Filipinos into ethnic groups describing Henry Otley Bayer's wave migration theory as representing settlements wave after better wave until the last wave, which is so advanced that it could appreciate the benefits of submitting to American rule. Views like this resonated in the progressive nationalist opposition to Marcus. So we have this... uh, Henry Otley Bayer, uh, another archaeology, who proposed a theory of migration, um, how people came to the Philippines, and then that the, the 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 theory is that the first people who came to the archipelago are those dark people who have who are nomads. They just go from places to places. They go to places where there's food. And after all the food there is gone, they move to another place. And then here came another group of people who have better materials, more advanced than the first one. So that is the theory of uh, um, Henry Altley Bayer. Now, Scott is criticizing this, that the, from Scott's point of view, he views those people came uh, are the same, and they came from different places, so they have the different kind of culture. That, um, and uh, he he criticized this uh, so highly, though. Um, I never heard. <laughs> I never heard of him well, I never heard of him until I tried to research on um, some history and I I like I like I like his theory better than the um, wave after better wave migration by Henry Elton Bayer. Scott held a bachelor's degree from Yale University master's degree from Colonia I mean Columbia University and PhD from University of Santo Tomas in 1968. Scott's dissertation was published by that year By the university of santo tomas press as pre-hispanic source materials of the study of philippine history a revised and expanded second edition was published in 1984. he debunked the kalancho legend in this book that kalancho was the main character in historical fabrication written by jose marco in 1913. through a series of failures by scholars to critically assess marcus representation the invented legend was adopted as actual history. As a result, Scott's work, Calancho, is no longer a part of the history texts of the Philippines. Scott's first well-known academic work is the discovery of Igorots. This is a story or history of the Cordillera mountain region over several centuries of Spanish contact. Constructed from contemporary Spanish sources, Scott argues that the difficulties the Spaniard encountered extended their rule in the face of local resistance resulted in the inhabitants in the region being classified as savage race separate to the tractable lowland people, or lowland Filipinos. Scott adopted a similar approach in the cracks in the parchment curtain, in which he tries to glean a picture of pre-colonial people Philippine Society from early Spanish sources. This project was criticized by a Baixanist Benedict Anderson, who argued that it yielded a vision of a Philippine society filtered through late medieval Spanish understanding. Scott was um, aware of its limitations, but argued Spanish records provide glimpses of Philippine societies and native reaction to colonial dominion of an incidental to the intention of the Spanish chronicler, which were the cracks in the Spanish parchment curtain. One of the last full-scale book was Ilocano Responses to American Aggression. The foreword was written by Joma Sison, the head of the Philippine Communist Party. The ETSA Revolution, which coincided with the publication of the book, obscured the fact that the foreword, had been written while season was in jail So scott died on october 1993 at the age of 72 at saint luke's hospital Kansas city following that following what was considered to have been a routine gallbladder operation he was buried in the cemetery of saint mary the virgin Sagada mountain province on October the 10th of october 1993. so his legacy is um i'm sorry in 1994 the Ateneo de manila university posthumously gave scott tanglaw ng lahi award for lifetime spent in teaching not only in the classroom but also outside the world by means of broad reaches of his contacts and communications and most of all through his hundred of published scholarly articles and inspirational which to disseminate and teach honest Philippine history to succeeding generation of Filipinos. On December 8, 2021, the National Historical Commission of the Philippines unveiled the historical marker commemorating Scott, a Saint of Mary's school in Sagada. All right so that is all about William Henry Scott and uh, just to um, elaborate more the thing here is uh, well he used like what I said a while back he used those writings from those Spanish people who lived during the time, uh, during the 1500s, but he was able to, like, filter it to show objectively what the Igrots are during those time, not branded as savage, but as but a people living in their own ways. So that's what I like about the writings of um, Dr. William. Henry Scott and uh, one of the another important uh, uh, point here that I want to share is that this um, wave after better wave theory of uh, Henry Altley Bayer if I'm not mistaken he's the one who theorized the migration theory of the first who came here the Philippines are the Negritos who are less uh, who have Less, I mean, less knowledge about the modern way of living came the Indonesian A and the Indonesian B, and these two Indonesians, I think, are the ones who inhabited the highlands. I mean, the Cordillera Mountains, and then later on came the Malays, who have better societal uh, societal uh, way of living, living. I mean, have better structures in the society they have their data et etc etc and uh, they can uh, appreciate a modern way of life something like that now in his view he 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 likes to think that uh, regardless of how we look at the other people's way of living we are all equal and I think that is one of the reason why he left the Cordillera a lot because uh, he can appreciate the culture of the people there. I mean here and now. I would like you. I would like to share to you some of the writings. I mean, one of the writings that he had, and the title of that one is the. Wait for it. Okay, the Egorot struggle for independence. So what i'll be doing here is i'd be <clears throat> i'd be reading this one and from time to time i'd be giving my opinion on what was written in the book so i don't i cannot remember all right so sponsor time this podcast is sponsored by Size space tech Size space tech Apokotegi offer t services like formatting software installation, file recovery, printer resetting, and related to computer, of course. And, uh, at home service, the Apple, the computers, you can contact size Space Tech, CY Space Tech, through their Facebook page. This is Space Tech, available in the locality of Mankayan. The time when he wrote this, with, um, I I had a very hard time looking for this one, so I forgive me if I will mispronounce some words here. Um, this one was um, a lifted out from a real book by a computer and there might be some typos right here that we might be encountering. And uh, nevertheless, I would like to share this with you, the Ugorod struggle for independence. By William Henry Scott. This is like a seven pages of article, and if you want to have a copy of this, this is in. I found this in the United States, and its territory is like. Oh my goodness! I cannot remember where if I I lifted this out. Anyway, <clears throat> you can just type it in the uh, in Google, and you can find the article. So in this podcast, I'd be. As a tribute to our uh, Cordilleran historian, a historian that has highlighted our culture in the world of libraries, in the books, the world of scholarly articles, uh, Mr. William Henry Scotts, I would be reading one of his articles, and here he goes. It is a strange thing that the history textbooks commonly in use in the public and private schools of the Republic of the Philippines never mention the fact that Igorot peoples of the northern Luzon fought for liberty against foreign aggressions all during the 350 years that their lowland brethren were being rolled over by Spanish invaders. Well, that is actually true. And you can never find that in the history books of the Philippines uh, until now. So, I don't know when was this written, but until now, you can never find the history that the Igorots were never conquered by the Spanish for all those 350 years that they were here. So, um, with the iPad education, I am hoping that... uh, fellow teachers like me when we are teaching history that we can share this to our students so that our students worrying are Ingorod's can share this also to other people. It's a very important thing that we were never conquered by the Spanish during those 350, more than 300 years that they were here. Right? So moving on. <clears throat> One history book says we can never know the history of filipino people during the spanish period because they were slaves to the spaniards or at least forced to play the role of slaves certainly this is not this is not true of the igorots they were never slaves to the spaniards nor did they play the role of slaves quite the contrary Spanish records make it clear that they fought for their independence with every means at their disposal for three centuries, and that this resistance to invasion was deliberate, self-conscious, and continuous. Like what we've been talking about with the past podcast, um, it was entitled The Rebellion of the Igorots, but I would call it the Spanish Igorot War for the reason that the Igorots were never conquered in the first place by the Spaniard, and when they had this um, war, I mean battle, the Igorots are deliberately fighting off the Spaniards so that the Spaniards would never control them. Moving on, that it was largely successful is, I mean, that it was largely successful is indicated by the fact that at the end of the Spanish regime, when the Cordillera Central have been carved up into dozens of military districts, the last Spanish census listed one-third of the estimated mountain population as completely independent. Foreign visitors to the Philippines all during the Spanish regime noticed this Igorot independence. An Italian traveler mentioned mentioned it in 1696, a Frenchman in 1766, an American in 1842, a German in 1878 and an Englishman in 1896, all in those years while our the people of the lowland in the Philippines are under the Spanish rule, Other people from other countries, I mean, acknowledged that Igorots are independent and they are not under the Spanish rule during those times. And it was a cause of great embarrassment to the Spaniards themselves. When Governor Diego Salcedo landed in Apari in 1662 and traveled to Manila through Ilocos and Pangasinan, He said he suffered a sense of shame to see all those mountains inhabited by the Igorots, owners of the gold mines, and enemies of the Christian. I would like to say this again. So according to Spanish, I mean, Governor Diego Salcedo, the mountains by the Igorots, the owner of the gold mines, and the enemies of christians so in 1779 an official said it is certainly a shameful thing for a nation to suffer such disorder without demanding satisfaction for the egregious crimes against our basal natives and a mockery on and cause for laughter among other foreigners and a hundred years later governor primo de rivera wrote almost same thing it is certainly humiliating paper read before the Cordillera Congress for National Liberation, Mountain Province National High School. I mean, I'm sorry, that was not included there. So it is certainly humiliating. I'll do it again. It's according to Governor Primo de Rivera. It is certainly humiliating for Spain and her government At home and abroad, to realize that thousands of human beings, some at the very doorway of the capital, and many others within the side of Christian towns with government forces and authorities, not only live in pre-conquest backwardness, but commit crimes even to the extent of collecting tribute from Christian towns themselves without receiving any punishment for their boldness. Of course, the Spaniards did not consider this resistance a fight for independence. They considered the Igorots to be bandits and savages and lawbreakers because they did not submit to Spanish rule like the land of lowlanders. And they explained the Igorots' defense of their liberty as instincts of uncivilized tribes who had always been at war With their more peace-loving neighbors. Well, an explanation. But the first generation of Spanish records do not make it clear that the Igorots' lowland neighbors were peace-loving or that the Igorots were their enemies. Quite the opposite. They make it clear that the Ilocanos and the Pangasinenses and the Igorots were business partners in the gold industry. So, that is before the spanish came we just to highlight it that igorots conduct business with their lowland neighbors like the ilocanos in the pangasinenses and um, in some accounts i have read that there are some ilocanos also that lived in the communities of igorots in bontoc right? so moving on a dominican account of 1593 says that Igorot brought their gold down to their special friends and agents in Pangasinan. And the Tamuk's book by Dr. Antonio de Morga in 1609, says Igorot mined the gold but the Ilocanos refined it and distributed it to other places. When the first priors went to Mangaldan, Pangasinan in 1588, they found the people were making regular business trips to the mountains and worshipping a mountain god called Apulaki in 1745. The place that is now called Aritao, Nueva Vizcaya, was inhabited by Panipo Igorots, who also inhabited villages high in the mountains of what is now known as Kayapa Municipality in the southern borders of Ifugao. And when a Kalinga chieftain revolt, raised the revolt in Isabella in 1787, the mayor of Camarag, who remained loyal to the Spaniards, was his own brother, considering the similarity of the present languages of Pangasinan and Benguet and of Isinai and Lagawi, who can say where the dividing line between the highlander and the lowlander was when the Spaniard arrived in the Philippines. So we really cannot say. So in this one, um, Mr. Scott is posting a theory that there is no real line, I mean, of separation between the Highlander and the Lowlander, as stated a while back. Um, the Highlander is um is are the ones mining the gold right and then they're giving it to their lowlander friends and um, we cannot really during before the Spanish times we really don't know um, where we can put a divide of where the who the Highlander is and who the lowlander is that is just a division that was created by the Spanish just to control the people during their time. And, of course, it's also prevalent during this time, our time right now, wherein regionalism is uh, so very strong. Okay, moving on. As a matter of fact, early Spanish account don't even make it clear that Highlanders and Lowlanders were very different racially and culturally. So it is safe to say that our culture during the pre-Hispanic time with the Lowlanders are, maybe most of it are similar, right? The first missionaries in Zambales, Pangasinan, and Cagayan said the natives were all headhunters there. And the same word, Mangayaw, is found as far as the dialects of Mindanao and was recorded by the first generation Spanish conquistadores. In the Visayas, when Juan de Salcedo drove the Chinese corsair Limahong out of Lingayen in 1574, he found bodies of Chinese who had escaped and were and were killed by locals. I mean, local people, and they were all headless. So this is in Pangasinan. Iguanas um, are known to be headhunters. But they never said that Pangasinan people are also headhunters during the olden times. So there's really no clear difference of culture during the pre-Hispanic era. This is what uh, tri- the, 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 this writing of Mr. Scott is trying to post it. Right? In fact, when Salcedo's own body was sent to Manila for burial in San Agustin Church after he died outside Vigan, Vegan is also part of Lowland. The head was missing. The natives I mean the native mountaineers of Panay, who were also unconquered by the Spaniards, this they dig up their ancestors' bones and buried them again after cleaning them just like the Ifugao's. So you see, other people other other people from other places has the I mean have this the same Culture that is similar to the cultures of the people of the Cordillera. And just so doctor De Morga said that the Tagalogs kept their ancestors' bones in the house and worshipped them. The kind of earrings, therefore called the Linglingo, have been dug up out of the two thousand year old Filipino graves in Palawan. All over the Philippines from Apari to Hullo, the Spaniard noticed that the Filipino considered a sneeze unlucky and the beginning of the journey, at the beginning of the journey, so sneeze is unlucky at the beginning of the journey, and that they would turn around and go home if a snake or a lizard crossed their path, or if a bird flew from one side to the other. A study by a UP professor makes a list of supposedly Chinese words in Tagalog. But this list include a lot of words which are common all over the mountain provinces like Atang, Bantay, Kutkut, Busog, Butyog, and Suwitik. Moreover, recent studies of vocabularies from languages and dialects all over the archipelago by Yale linguists indicates that Tagalog and Bontok, for instance, have more basic words in common than either of them does in any language outside the Philippines like Borneo. For instance, it is hard to explain this similarity if Tagalogs came to the Philippines in a separate wave of migration 2,000 years after the Bontoks already settled in the mountains of the Grand Cordillera Central. Anyway, whatever the picture was in pre-Hispanic times, after the Spaniards started conquering off the lowland Filipino tribes those who submitted to the Spaniards naturally became enemies of those who didn't. A Spanish complaint of the 1606 says the Ugros prevented other Filipinos from becoming Christians and stole children who had been baptized to raise them in the old pagan religion. Some Jesuit theologians of the 1619 argued that Oh, just war could be made against Igorots because they prevented free passage through their lands to the Ilocanos and Cagayanes. Our friends and vassals of the king, our lord, and missionaries helped to make enmity between converts and pagans too. The first missionary in Manawak bribed converts to report pagans who secretly held Kanyaus governor crozet in 1690 issued an order that lowlanders would be punished by 100 lashes for having dealings with pagan Igorots. so if you are the person living in the lowlands uh, well you don't have any choice at all if um, you must I mean uh, maybe at first, the first generation of people in the lowlands would be saying that they have no choice but to be to be converted as Christians, because, well, for safety, um, no one would like to receive one hundred lashes or whips, being punished just because you have you talk to an eagle. I mean, you better have to for safety purposes. You have better to be um, better. Believe, and uh, I mean, throw away your old way of life, old cultures, and just adapt what they're telling you to do, just to, for self-preservation. And then after that, the second generation will be, you know, they they're naturally Christian when they grow while growing up. So, um, here comes another generation. And take note that the Spaniards stayed in the Philippines for three hundred years. So. That is a long time, and the original culture of the lowlanders was completely deleted during those 300 years. You cannot, you can never even see, hey, um, with the exception of the words they're using, like uh, what was written in the, fore, um, the, um, the previous passage, with the exception of the words, but in the culture, the lowland culture, like what. What, what you said a while back is that they have similarities with the... If we are to believe the accounts, is that there is a similarity, a great similarity with the culture of the Highlanders. But after the 300 years, you can never see that with the culture of the Lowlanders. So that's what happens. So moving on. An Angostinian missionary handbook in 1731 says that Tingian or Tingyanis and Igorots should be attracted by peaceful means, but that after peaceful means have failed to convert them, they should be threatened and their fields taken away from them. And the records make it clear that the Igorots often had justified complaints too. In 1753, the head of Augustinians had an Igorot petition translated for the Governor-General, asking for the return of gold silver and blankets that had been grabbed by the agents of governor of pangasinan in 1773 the Igorots burned the church of san nicolas pangasinan in revenge for the loss of their gold which they entrusted to a local businessman accounts both in both the 18th and 19th centuries, say that the Igorots collected land rentals in the foothill, uh, foothills of the Ilocos, Cagayan, and Isabella, because they claimed to have owned that land before the Spaniards relocated lowland converts there. A friar writing in Kiangan in 1857 said, the major cause of fighting between Ifogovs and Christian was the conflicting claims to the same hunting grounds, and he adds, the pagans are not always to blame, either. At any rate, if the Ygrads and the lowlanders were natural enemies from the time of memorial, before the coming of the Spaniards, how come the Spaniards are always complaining that the lowlanders were always escaping and running away to join the mountaineer pagans? So, this is like some evidence. It's an evidence adding up, and it's giving us a, giving a strong um, indication that the lowlanders and the highlanders before the Spanish came are so similar. Then one of the reason maybe is that. Some lowlanders are trying to escape and going to the mountains to join the mountaineer pagans, as they say, right? So if you are a person who has a different culture from that of the highlander, you would never attempt to go to the highland, right? But if you are so familiar with the highlander, then most often than not, you would be going to the mountains because you know them very well, right? The 17th century petition calls igorotland a den of thieves where delinquent christians take refuge and escape the law and after the jago silang uprising in the 1762 to 63 the governor general called it a place where rebels take refuge because they are their allies and our enemies also more and more we're looking at the, looking at this writing more and more, I mean examining it, you we can see that really that lowlanders during those times and the mountaineers, the Igrotts, are just the same. As a matter of fact, the whole population under the control of the Spaniards and the Ilocos went went down by one sixth during the first 25 years of the conquest. One of the modern scholars concluded that they all escaped the mountain provinces. I mean, and Father Lambert, after the sucks, a careful study of the internal evidence of the Ifogal hood hoods, thinks all the Ifogals migrated into the present province of ifugao after the spaniard invaded the upper magat river valley all right just a moment here and we are going to put back the music okay <laughs> all right so continue. um just had a little uh mistake in my setup here but moving on modern filipino writers seems to have be just as slow as the spaniards to give credit to the egrets for their defense of their homeland again i want to repeat this because um this was written like during the 1990s maybe i suppose but even the writers right now, and so I'll repeat this again, Modern Filipino writers seems to be just as slow as the Spaniards to give credit to Igorots for their defense of their homeland. Right? <laughs> history professors in Manila classrooms have been known to say that it was all just an accident of history history, or geography. By this, they mean either that it was too much trouble for Spaniards to invade the mountains or that they didn't want to do so in the first place. The idea that the Spaniards didn't want to invade the mountains of the Igret is just flatly contradictory to their own records. Okay, now, like I said before, they tried to. There are some part of the mountains that they invaded, right? But in the history, like uh, there are some accounts that when they go to the mountain because of the, of, because of the ferociousness of the Iguazus when they're going to war with the Spaniards, um, that the Spaniards really um, didn't want to. They are scared. Just bottom line, they are scared of going to the mountains because of the continuous attack. By these Igrats, of course the terrain helped. That uh, for uh, that's why the Igrats are. Um, I mean, were able to um, held their own against this uh, more modern weaponry of the Spaniards. But of course they uh, let saying that the Spaniards. Um, what do you call this one? It was too much trouble for the Spaniards to invade the mountain. It's like um I um, it's like neglecting to study more of what was the reason why the Spaniards were not able to. Right, first and foremost, they were so interested about the mountains because of the gold, and what the reason of the expansion of the Spain's um land. I mean this expansion of the spanish um colonial territory is because of the three g's right gold god and glory so and gold the gold that they're looking for is in the cordilleras so and again like what if just thinking it that way you would you would see that the reasons of like the history money uh history professors of Manila like uh, what Mr. Scott said is really not a reasonable reason. Okay? Now Mr Ka- Mr Scott said that the idea that the Spanish didn't want to invade the mountains of Igorot is just flatly contradictory to the records. They heard about Ilocos gold mines before they ever set foot in Luzon and it only took them five years after the founding of manila to reach the baguio mines they established short-lived forts in boa and Antamok in 1620 1623 and 1624 and in Mancayan and lipanto in 1668 but they were never able to stay until the full invention of modern repeating rifles A hundred years later, they tried to open road through Igoro territory between Pangasinan and Kangayan. And in 1750, began 150 war with the Ifogaos. In 1767, they were repulsed by by Kiangan in Kiangan itself. In 1793, they were met by natives wearing metal armor. And during the nineteenth century, they made literally dozens of expeditions into that province. Again, these accounts never made it to our history books. Yet in the 19, i mean, yet in the eighteen fifties, the Ifugao killed or drove out all the Spanish missionaries in Mayoyao, Bunhian, and Kiangan. In the eighteen eighties they were picking off members of the new occupation forces one by one. During the revolution, they completely massacred Kiangan Garrison and sent a war party of 600 down to attack a Garrison in Isabella. As far as saying that the Spanish couldn't invade the mountain is concerned, is it the case that all Lowlanders were conquered and all Highlanders remained independent? independent? What about the Muslims? They defended their lip. This podcast is sponsored by Monoflor's Egg Poultry. So Monoflor's Egg Poultry sells egg, fresh eggs, and they are available in the locality of Mancayan. Of course, you can check them out by checking their Facebook page, Monoflor's Egg Poultry. Check them out right now. Liberty against Spanish invasions, whether they lived in mountains or in tiny little island or in right or right on the sea coast on the other hand not everybody who lived in the mountains resisted the spanish conquest or for that matter even wanted to the mountains called the Caraballo, sewer between nueva vizcaya and nueva sija are a case in point for these mountains are so rugged and easy to defend that the Philippine army had to provide armed escort for public transportation through that area as late as 1950s. When the Spaniards sent four expeditions through this area in 1591 and 1594, the people of some villages welcomed them and paid them tribute, but in other villages tried to fight them off and still others completely repulsed them. Yet within a decade, a native delegation came to Manila asking for Spanish intervention in local wars. And for another 150 years, Spanish forces were welcomed in some places and repulsed in others. So right here is comparing the the way Igorots have in other, uh, I mean other, say for example, the Muslims have defended their places during the Spanish regime. And comparing it to this place here in Caraballo Zur, where they greatly welcomed, for some reason, um, they welcomed the presence of the Spaniards in their place, though some of their neighboring uh, area, neighboring area of that air, um, in, of that mountain, repulsed the Spaniards. Yeah, so moving on, the people of Saint Catherine's Mission, Uhai, for example, only six kilometers away from. Aritao always welcomed the conquistadores and their missionaries while, in, while the Panipo Igorots of Aritao fought them off from behind stone walls until 1745. Yet Buhai was built on top of rocky mountains so steep people needed ladders to climb up while Aritao was exposed to attack right in the open plain of Magat Valley. How come Buhai submitted the, but not Aritao? Besides, the Igorots quickly learned that living in the mountains did not spare them from Spanish attacks. All right, so he's comparing. So just to just to discredit the claim that because of the the terrain, that's the reason why the Spanish did. Uh, that's the reason why the Igorots were so successful in fighting off the Spaniard. And he, um, Mr. Scott, cited all the places were in. Um, some of the some of these places are have a, a good terrain for def- defense, but they submitted to the Spaniards. And comparing to other places like in Aritao say for example, who were successful in fighting off the Spaniards. So, just to discredit the f- the, the theory that the reason why these Igorots were successful in defending their places is because of the terrain. <clears throat> Moving on. Besides, the Igorots quickly learned that the living in the mountains did not spare them from the Spanish attacks. So, like what are you saying a while ago? In 1755, a Spanish friar went to live in the village of Tonglo, near the public school in the present municipality of Tuba, outside Baguio. After he destroyed their idols, they threatened to stone him to death, and a few months later drove him out. So they allowed him to go there but then if you say if you tell the Igorots that they are worshiping the wrong god they will be sending you away <laughs> since they were the only since they were only a day's hike from the Spanish garrison on the coast they must have known they were risking punishment and in 1759 it came three separate detachment of lowland soldiers who took 3 weeks to reach Tonglo in which they subjected five hours of artillery fire burned it to the ground so completely no trace of its location can be found today that can be an archaeological site but we cannot find it today yet the angry survivors of the battle did not surrender they simply retreated deeper into the mountains and Some of their descendants are still living in Baguio today. This was part of the heavy price which Igorots paid for their independence, always giving up their homes and villages and fields to Spanish fire and sword and retreating deeper and deeper into the higher mountain ranges to struggle for a harder existence. It is clear that at the beginning of the Spanish occupation, Igorots lived in better houses, so just to just to give a better picture so this battle in Tonglo over in um soldiers lowland soldiers came and uh, I mean bombarded the place to smithereens that you cannot find it today and what did they gods do after losing the battle what they they do they just moved deeper into the mountains and and that is one of the, one of the, um, what do you call it? One consequences of fighting off the Spaniards. So if you say that the Spaniards, the Spaniards didn't uh, want, <laughs> they didn't want to, um, I mean, what do you call the one? They want to conquer this. Sp- the mountains because of the terrain, then why did this happen and just to show you that the Igorots suffered a lot because of this war that they had with the Spaniards just to give you a picture according to this one Igorots um, lived in a better houses bigger than the date later um, before the Spanish came, the houses of Egros are bigger, according to some accounts. And, well, I trust Mr. Scott because, I mean, he's an archaeologist and made, made, really made his research. So I trust him if he says that but during the olden times before the Spanish came and before the war that they had with the Spanish, Egros houses are better and they live in a bigger valley villages right the 1620 expedition to baguio found fortifications so solid they used them to build their own fort so they have but uh, the the in Baguio, 1620 expedition they can see this fortification that is so good that spaniards use it as their own uh, fort a 1740 account says Igorot houses were so spacious three families could live in one of them. In 1759, Expedition found a settlement with 35 large houses all made of boards arranged along a regular street with a plaza and a kind of church for their pagan ceremonies. When Galvey entered the Trinidad Valley in 1829, he found 500 houses there and started burning them. In 1883, there were only 50 left. So one of the reasons maybe that that's why it it devolved, the Igorot house devolved from just a single room house is that because they keep on moving. They are moving to a deeper, deeper part of the mountain because of the constant attack by the Spaniards. In 1883 there were only 50 left we're talking about the house in the Trinidad Valley and a German traveler in 1861 found Agno Valley full of stone walls in the fields all grown over with underbrush and he reported today most villages bear the stamp of misery and deprivation the fields are badly maintained the stone walls around the houses are falling down the big villages of Galvez's time have been deserted. When the Igrots were not literally overwhelmed overwhelmed by sheer number of firepower, however, they proved formidable opponents. No Spanish force ever maintained a garrison permanently on the Cordillera before the Remington ri- repeating rifle replaced the old musket that were almost useless in wet weather. The gold mining drove Igrots to drove off two Spanish expedition before they could sample their ores. When Martin Carante was finally successful in carrying own gold samples in 1625, he brought along 85 Spaniards double number Salcedo, double the number Salcedo took to the Ilocos in 1572, as well as 750 Chinese, Japanese, and Filipinos. Nor could the Spanish government guarantee protection to their lowland vassals from Igorot attack. In 18th century, a Spanish historian says the Ilocano farmers had to work their fields with a sickle in one hand and a weapon in the other. The traveler could not use the royal highway along the coast without armed escort. When one officer proposed an attack on the Igorots in 1796, the and told the governor it would be an easy victory he replied don't forget to make an estimate of the pensions of the widows and the mothers of those killed in the battle just to show you how Igorots will go to the battle okay it is already expected that when you go against them during those time that a lot of people will die that's why they say, don't forget to make an est- estimate of the pensions for the wed- widows and mothers of those that will be killed in battle. The traditional Igorot arsenal consisted of, so this is what Igorots used to go to the battle with them. Consisted of a wooden shield, bamboo lances, a highly effective stakes planted in grassy trails, to strike their enemies in the ankle or foot, bows and arrows were only rarely used, and iron weapons like spears, bolos, and head axes only appeared later. Their defensive tactics included blockades of trees and branches in mountain passes where they could roll down big stones and tree trunks. They often pretended to retreat until the invaders lowered their guards and even pretended to surrender and then wiped out the supposed victors by ambush on their way home. Like what I said, um, one account says that, uh, so they were, they, they went and chased them and then they were gone. And then suddenly they appear and attack them again and then... They are gone again. So they, it says that they are hiding. They just came out out from the fog. You now the mountains, mountain mountains of the Cordillera is sometimes foggy, and that includes uh, that added more uh, fear from the heart of those soldiers because they cannot see who is attacking them. I I am looking for that book where I read the one until now I cannot find it. More especially, they tried to keep all their trails and villages secret and killed their fellow who acted as guides for the enemy. The Spanish friar wrote in 1789, those who come down to trade in the lowlands are only men or chieftains in whom they have confidence, never women or children or slaves. Is if you ask them for information about their land and mines they just act dumb. And if they say anything at all, it is just lies or nonsense and only leaves you all the more confused. But whether the Igorots were better fighters than the Spaniards or do not does or not does not answer this question why they remain remained independent and their lowland brothers submitted to the Spanish conquest because the Spaniards were always so few in numbers and the lowlanders could surely have overcome them if they really tried to do so. Between the 1572 and 1872, the Filipino population paying tribute increased from 500,000 to 5 million. Yet, there were never more than 2,000 Spanish soldiers in the whole archipelago Jose Rizal explained this phenomenon by saying the people were accustomed to bondage and would not defend themselves against the invader- invaders and would not fight for them, it was just change of masters I mean one of the reason maybe is that like what we said a while ago, uh, invasion or conquest um, con- conquering other people happens in different angles like you can conquer them physically and you can you can conquer their mind wherein uh, the use of religion is a very strong one where they Christianized they Christianize the the i mean the filipinos right and as a christian you're not bawal sayo i mean you were. You have to love your enemy, and that would be the very reason why, even if they their number rose to five million, they did not repel those two hundred. I mean, two thousand Spanish soldiers. Okay, moving on. The people uh, and Professor Teodoro Agoncillo said it was because the natives would blindly follow anything the friars. Their spiritual advisors told them to do so. Wow. Exactly my point a while back. Certainly this was not true to the Igorots. They were satisfied with their form of government and they were satisfied with their kind of religion. The pagans of Tonglo, for example, tore told the idol-smashing friar who came to convert them, It's no easier for the people to give up their ancient practices for the word of a priest than for him to give up what he believes. And their pagan priestess told him, If you're priest, or if you're the priest of the Christians, so am I, the egonauts, and if you have God, I have mine. In 1857, a priest or a Spanish priest in Ifugao told the following story. When I was in Bunhian, I wanted to catechize a 12-year-old boy who was very ill in order to baptize him. But when I told him he would go to heaven if he died, his mother turned to me angrily and told me she didn't want her son to go to heaven. Why not give him some medicine and cure him and leave him in this world? And when the priest tried to persuade an old igorot of Somadol, it was unsanitary to bury the dead under the house, he replied, But don't you understand that if we bury our dead out there in the cemetery on the mountain, they will come back at night, take up their bodies, and eat up all our camotes." The whole igorot attitude toward their religion may be nicely summarized in 18th century statement they made to some lowlanders the fiestas of the christians aren't worth anything because it's all just a lot of noise making with bells and drums and muskets and then everybody just go home to his own house and eats what little he has but the fiestas of our leaders are not like that they are good tasting and satisfying and they don't have all the racket. They kill animals by the dozens and everybody drinks until he passes out. Among you, anybody is mayor or a headman, but our leaders are never changed. No matter how much they spend, they always have more. Some Spaniards themselves understand, understood the Igorot pride in their own way of life. Father Francisco Antolin A Dominican friar stationed in Aritao spent 18 years trying to learn as much as he could about the Igorots and their way of life, and he wrote a long book about them in 1879. The following is a quotation from the description of the Igorots almost 200 years ago. Small population of Filipinos is usually attributed to smallpox, venereal disease, and leprosy, or to wars, deforestation. tribute." division of land, migration, and similar things. But the Igorots have practically none of this. They take sufficient care of the mountain passes to prevent the entrance of smallpox and other epidemics from the Christians. They don't navigate seas or rivers, nor do they leave their own country. They have nobody to order them to row, act as cargadors or cut wood. They work eat and drink as they wish and when they like. They have few long-range wars. The very fact of having maintained themselves an independent republic this long, exploiting their mines without Christian or pagans having been able to seize their mineral wealth implies a great population. If they were few and not disposed to cooperate among themselves, they would not have been able to resist becoming Christian and obedient vassals until now. Although their agriculture is most primitive, they do not have those duties, sometimes enforced, which the Christians have like government service. Running messages, making roads, attending church, and various tasks incompatible with work and cultivating their fields. Those who live... By working in the gold, copper, and iron mines care little about making fields, and why should they wear themselves out in agriculture but when the gold, knives, and pots they produce suffice for everything? But from this it is not to be concluded that their land is completely barren and miserable, for it abounds precious materials. The fact is that the egrots are contented with it, and that it cost missionaries much battling strife and diligence to get them out of their land and make them live among Christians. They give many reasons for not coming down. They say the town of the Christians are very hot, that there is much smallpox and many epidemics, that there are crimes, robberies, and conflicts between people, and that there are many to give orders and make the poor people work, much less our tribute monopoly and government officials hidden from them. And even though they also have to be subject to the whims of their leader up there, these are lighter and they can evade them. In short, they do not envy products and conveniences of the Christians, and only seek free trade in blankets, g-strings, and animals for their gold. And with this alone, they kept themselves happy in their mountains. This independent attitude would not have been so objectionable if it had been kept in a rough isolation on the heights of the Cordillera. But the fact was that Igrots came and went to the lowlands as they pleased. It was galling enough that they raided t- tribute-paying Spanish subjects, and carried off lowland heads or even whole lowlanders as slaves or objects of ransom but what was worse that these depredations did not interrupt 350 years of lowland commercial cooperation with them in pangasinan and in locals they traded cold, copper utensils counterfeit coins wax rattan for rice pigs and cattle so if you can see even though they are pagans, so-called pagans. These Igorots go down the mountains and they trade with the lowlanders. So they still have those uh, that those business partnership that they had long before the Spaniards came. The Ifugao's made their purchases purchases with rice in the Macagayan and Magat valleys and with iron tools they made from broken iron pots they got from Ilocos, which people of Nueva Vizcaya considered superior to Manila Bolos. Lowland merchants traveled around buying up carnelian beads to sell them at a peso or a a peso apiece. Igorot G-strings were woven on Ilocano looms in the 18th century as in the 20th, Igorot miners refreshed themselves with basi carried up from lowlands and molasses cakes. The Igorot traders themselves moved freely back and forth across the cordillera. They sold Ilocano iron tools in Nueva Vizcaya as early as 1690, and 1780 a missionary in Aritao sent letter to fellow friar in Bawang by some Ifugal traders from Tino. Nor were these Igorot traders completely ignorant of the lowland politics. Either a native of Cayapa told the Spanish friar who was trying to convert him in 1785. So what about this Englishman who captured Manila? They were white men and Christians, weren't they? This untaxed trade was especially objectionable in the case of the Igorot gold monopoly. Neither a king nor a missionary could put the gold out of their minds for a very, for a very long. Christ called it magnets of men's heart and preached that God had hidden the gold in the most remote parts of the pagan world to attract greedy Christians there so the Gospels could be spread. Uh, one of the reasons why they want to go to the Igorot country. When King Philip III foolishly took Spain into the Thirty Years War, he wrote to the Archbishop of Manila, with your experience in the island You will now you will know the importance of maintaining them not only because of the Christian faith which is the main reason but also because of the condition of a royal Treasury and so because it is necessary above everything else to have necessary treasure or money for it it deemed that the only and chief solution must be exploit those mines of the Igorots. When Governor Salcedo sent out expedition in 1668 to Mancayan, he ordered them, Even if you came across the gold mine, make no show of stemming them, nor look for them, because it should not seem that you have any other aim than to reduce their souls to God. Save the exploitation of the mines for later. This expedition of Igrot gold mines, however, were all so expensive and so unproductive that after the failure of the 1668 entry to Lipanto, the Spanish government never attempted another one. So, they tried, I think during this time, this was the time where the Spanish royal uh, treasury is, um, I mean, having hard time. And, uh, uh, the economy the economy of the Spanish of Spain is uh, going down uh, for reason I, I cannot tell you because I'm not a historian <laughs> but it's ju- during this time that they were they were really looking for gold it's of course using the name of God as an excuse to find those gold however when they came to the Igorot country um, they they failed. Um, they tried a mine in Lepanto, but they did not continue for some reason we don't know. So they never had another one. So uh, and right now Lepanto Mine is one of the biggest mining company here in Benguet. By 1800s, however, a new economic crisis arose with the Igorots. This podcast is brought to you by Millennial Tech. Millennial Tech could ma-repair the printer, ma-install the CCTV, repair that is cellular phone, computer, and other electrical appliances. For more information, mabali na i-visita at Building, proper abatan, bugyas, pinget, Or you can contact them through their cell phone number 0910-255-0382 or you can visit their Facebook page, Millennial Tech. In the eight, 1780, the government instituted monopoly on tobacco in the Philippines, and it was so successful that for the first 200 years, the colony actually showed a profit for the home government. The monopoly prompted, uh, promptly became an object of sabotage by the Egorots. They, only, they not only grew contraband tobacco themselves, but carried it all the way to Cagayan to sell illegally to the Ilocos. At first, this Igorot trade was winked at under hopeful policy of trying to track them and under the illusion that not much money was involved. By 1836, however, it was discovered that tobacco taxes in Ilocos Norte and Ilocos Ordo had dropped off by 66% because of the the contraband tobacco being sold sold by Igorots. The government therefore sent Colonel Guillermo Galve through Benguet, Lepanto, Bontoc, and Ifugao in 1829-39 to put an end to the tobacco smuggling and Igorot independence. But still, even after their fields were burned, their villages leveled, and their populations decimated by smallpox carried by the soldiers, the Igorots continued to evade the monopoly. So the government agreed, agreed to exempt them on the understanding they would only sell their tobacco to a government station. But a spanish official reported in 1842 experience has shown the useless uselessness of this arrangement because the pagans they're talking about the igorots carried 10 bundles to the government and then sell hundreds as contraband for the price they get from the lowlanders is always better than what they get from the government monopoly galvis decimation of Pinget, however did make its miserable survivors the first tribe of Egros to be officially listed as the Spanish subject. Lepanto soon followed and Bontoc in 1859. But not until 1890s, under the energetic Governor-General Villarriano Weyler, the so-called Butcher of Cuba, were troops permanently quartered in Kalinga or Ifugao. The last Spanish census in 1898 claimed 1,200. I mean one hundred twenty 120, four one hundred twenty thousand four hundred forty four pagans recognizing vassalage to the king of spain it must have been tenuous sort of vassalage, however to judge from the chance reference of foreign travelers at the end of the spanish regime a detachment of 40 men wiped out on the march for example or two garrisons in sultan valley massacred one sunday during a mass or number, or the number of twelve Spanish heads shown in German scientist Alexander Alexander Schadenberg, or the fact, or or for that matter, the Spanish jaw bones still decorating heirloom gangzas in the remote parts of the province even today. I'm not sure if there are still these things today, but so um, according to history, there, there are some part of. The cordilleras that was uh, that came under the Spanish regime say for example Benguet Lepanto is in Benguet just the same but during those time it's separated and Bontoc but they they claim that there are 120,000 Igorots claiming or uh, recognizing the king of Spain as their king but we don't know if that is really a full recognition of the power of the king of Spain and then uh, mr scott uh, laid out some examples here if they really are recognizing this uh, the king of spain as their king then why is it that there are there are these things 40 men wiped out during a march a uh, two garrison that was completely decimated 12 spanish heads <laughs> 12 spanish soldiers heads shown to german scientist alexander scheidenberg and the the Joe bones of Spanish soldiers being used um, gongs the gongs that um, being played by the ego sometimes is that uh, according to olden tradition the 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 part where you hold it because the gongs has a string attached to it and in that string there is something a u-shaped thing where you place your fingers and then you can easily hold the gongs and accordingly in the olden times uh, the, the, the thing that they attach to the string are human joe bones and I don't know where Mr. Henry Scott found this once but he saw some gongs that is being decorated with Spanish joe bones until this time he says and uh, I hope we can see that today meanwhile Moving on. During the three centuries when the Spanish firearms never really conquered the lofty liberty of the Igorots, they were paying heavy price for their independence, moving off into remote parts of the Cordillera. That's the struggle. That's why the title of this one, Struggle for the Independence, is that they never stay. they can never stay to one place. They have to move to the inner part of the mountain. They had to pit their brawn and brains against raw nature and sterile soil. And while they learned to carve whole mountain sides into churches to wring out bare substance of living, they tribute, their tribute-paying brethren in the lowlands were yielding to farm like Spaniards and cook like Chinese. Drachano Lopez Haina was ornamenting the Spanish press with his graceful prose, and Oserizal was hobnobbing with European scholars. In a half dozen foreign language their illiterate igorot compatriots were exhibited in the philippine exposition along with other natives and plants and animals in their mountain province independence the igorot missed out on all those convenient innovations enjoyed by their conquered brethren like the iron plows the horses the cows the pancit the pandesal the camisa de chino The Barong Tagalog, a grade school primers, and those prestigious blue eyes and curly blonde hair. It was a heavy price to pay for liberty, is it? Is it, though? (laughs) And is it? It is. A price not yet fully paid. For even their descendants, who were congressmen, professors, and bishops, must send their children to government schools where they dutifully stare at the textbooks, which say they are different from other Filipinos because their ancestors came in wrong wave of migration but never a word about their 350 year resistance of the foreign aggression. that is I mean um, other books where you can have this one on oh, ng mga Limbas I'm not sure if there uh, this was indicated in that book so uh this is the essay of uh mr william henry scott and i really appreciate <laughs> the the love he has for the egroth culture and the the hard work he he had given just to show that egroth the Igorots um have worked hard to be unconquered for three hundred fifty years, and yet, you know, we're suffering from this. Um. I mean, uh, we are being excluded. As a Filipino, we came from what they call the wrong wave of migration. Why would we? Why did? Why is it the wrong wave of migration? Because we are not. We are not. I mean. We are not modernized. The so-called we are not so-called modernized. I'm not sure, but until now, um, if there are some issues about Igorots, the only time that we are being, uh, uh, I mean, we, we are um, written in the book is when somebody made a mistake of describing us describing us to be dark Uh, not that there's something wrong with someone but uh, describing us to be uncivilized and putting us in a place where, uh, putting us in a uh, picturing us as a very I mean an early early times prison and then they never knew that uh, No, nobody has ever said that the Igorots had been an independent Filipino people for 350 years during the Spanish regime and I guess uh, it is our duty as um, Igorots those who are Igorots living in the United States to in in Canada in other countries those are those Igorots who are listening right now to it is our duty to share this to other Igorots for them to know that uh, they, we have we have this beautiful story. So, like what they said, while Graciano Lopez Haina was ornamenting the Spanish press with his graceful prose, while Jose Rizal was hobnobbing with European scholars with half dozen foreign languages, uh, we are still enjoying our independence you see so but we suffered greatly we paid we paid for that one because the, we are pictured as uh, barbaric uh, because of the spanish influences to our lowland brethren we were pictured as such that even manila historians uh, i remember one of the um 2016 and during the uh, in the year 2016 when the um, one Igorot went viral in the social media because he is handsome and uh, he's polygenic. One of the <laughs> one of the UP professor said that we uh, uh, was asked the question of why does the Igorot look good, and he said that there's an improvement of the race because of the missionaries moving up the mountains doing their work. In the cordilleras uh, so it is he didn't say it directly but in his I could say that in his personal point of view um, we are the lower kind of race that we need blue I mean white person to go up for us to have the improved kind of race you see <laughs> again the notion of the Filipino notion that uh, somebody with a big nose and a white uh, complexion is an improved race until now that's very prevalent even to a highly educated person like him all right so this is one of the great writings that was written by uh, William Henry Scott I just hope that uh, the music didn't disturb you well. I mean, disturb you during the first reading. I I made a wrong setup on the sound system. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. And this is Elmeister Speaks Podcast. I'll be seeing you again in the next episode. Good day,